You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Let's gather bring the kids here, and then we'll talk. That is not going to happen. I don't even know who I'm talking to. If that's true, if you don't know who I am, then maybe your best course would be to tread lightly. You've just downloaded an episode of Sectarian Review, a monthly podcast of reviews, cultural criticism, and opinion. Contributors to Sectarian Review try to think broadly and seriously, but also a little frivolously about the life of the mind in contemporary America. We've read a lot, watched a lot, and thought a bit about the world, and we're here to talk about it. Sectarian Review is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, but don't hold those guys too responsible for what we say here. If something we say gets you thinking, send us an email at sectarianreview at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page where you can post comments, reactions, and ideas for future episodes. Now sit back, relax, and hopefully enjoy another episode of Sectarian Review. Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to another episode of Sectarian Review. Uh, Thanks again for downloading us. We've been enjoying putting the show on, and we've got some nice feedback from some listeners uh, as uh, as we've gone on, and hopefully we're getting better at this. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about anti-heroes. Drew Bantland is going to be leading us this uh, discussion on this uh, prominent cultural form that uh, probably has some ramifications that we need to consider. Maybe this is a reason that Donald Trump exists uh, for our, uh, in our political sphere, and we need to think about this. Um, but before we get to that, I want to throw out a couple of reminders. Uh, don't forget that we have a Facebook page where you can leave us uh, some kind of immediate feedback on what you're hearing. Um, we'd love to hear what you think, uh, criticisms, uh, show ideas, uh, contributions, elaborations on anything that we have to say. It's all welcome, and uh, we'd love to incorporate your voice into the podcast uh, as we continue here. Uh, and we also have an email address. It's sectarianreview at gmail.com. Feel free to shoot us an email every now and then and let us know how you are, uh, or some show ideas again. Uh, we're always looking for new ideas from the, what you would like to hear us talk about. Uh, my name is Danny Anderson. I am an assistant professor of English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. And I am joined today by uh, Ed Simon and Drew Vantland. Ed, uh, let me uh, ask you how you're doing today. I'm good. I'm good. Glad to be back here. Yeah, it's glad to have you uh, have you here again. It was a lot of fun last time. And uh, Drew, how are you? I'm doing uh, as well as one could do at the end of a semester. Yes, the listeners should know that we're all three at the end of a of another semester. And so, uh, if there's any kind of fogginess and Stuttering on my part, uh, please forgive us and, and, and bear with us. It'll get better next time, I promise. Uh, well, Drew, this is uh, sort of your baby today, so I want to pitch it along to you to uh, get the conversation started. You want to set up the parameters of what we'll be talking about today? Yeah, so um, we're going to be talking about anti-heroes, and I, this ties into the trope of heroes in general, um, 
because the two categories merge and uh, they're not so clearly delineated throughout history. Um, in particular, the history of pop culture, um, I guess what was once called high culture. Uh, and so we're going to be looking at a number of examples of heroes who don't qualify as maybe good people and who can present you know, thoughtful viewers and readers and um, audience members with some real ethical quandaries about the degree to which we identify with, with the darkness um, within. And so I, I'd like to turn it over to Ed to get us started um, with kind of the paradigmatic anti-hero. Sure. So this is a, a abstract that I wrote over the course of the summer for um, academic anthology uh, that is appearing. It's about representations of hellishness and uh, the devil. So uh, this is my contribution to that volume, which hasn't come out yet. But uh, I'll just read through this real quickly. Uh, the title of my potential paper is The One Who Knocks, Milton's Lucifer and the American Tragic Character. So I begin with, in his classic work, Love and Death in the American Novel, the critic Leslie Fiedler argued that there exists a, quote, dimly perceived need of many Americans to have their national existence projected in terms of a compact with the devil, end quote. For scholars like Fiedler and Leo Marx, the American experience can be conceived of as a type of Faustian bargain, the gaining of an earthly paradise at the expense of our previous innocence. Indeed, this is not a new idea. Puritan writers like Cotton Mather in the 17th and 18th centuries saw America as simultaneously a new Israel, but also the site of Satan's throne in the wilderness. It generated a self-contradictory view of America's providential role. Simultaneously, heaven and hell, utopia and dystopia, Canaan and Babylon, a phenomenon that I call covenantial ambivalence. Perhaps no literary character embodies these contradictions, like John Milton's Lucifer, Lucifer in Paradise Lost, and perhaps no character has been more borrowed by canonical American literature to stand in for our national character. As William Spengman has pointed out, Milton's Britishness has been no impediment to Americans gravitating to his work as somehow authentically American. And disturbingly, nowhere is this truer than in the character of Lucifer. While the romanticism of Lucifer as Byronic hero has been well commented on, less discussed is how archetypally American he is and how as a character he is threaded through our national literature. In studies in, classical, in classic American literature, D.H. Lawrence remarked that, quote, the essential American soul is hard, isolate, stoic, and a killer. It has never yet melted, end quote. An apt description of Milton's novel creation in Lucifer. The devil, as depicted in Paradise Lost, is a consummate and archetypal American. He is a confidence man, advertiser, rebel, partisan of liberty, and faker at the same time, self-made, a rugged individualist setting out into the wilderness to make his own world anew. This paper will look at how this type of character is the dominant one of American literature, focusing on that most Miltonic of creations, Ahab, in Herman Melville's Moby Dick, and investigating his appearance in modern texts, notably as Tony Soprano in David Chase's The Sopranos, Don Draper in Matthew Weiner's Mad Men, and most notably as Walter White in Vince Gilligan's Breaking Bad. All of these characters are consummate Americans and embodiments of our periods, desperately flailing and dying, angry white man. They are entitled, ruthless, innovative, enraged, creative, and dangerous. Luciferian through and through, as well as American. 
This is because America is of the devil's party, and deep down, we know it. So that is my thing, and that's sort of uh, how I've been engaging with and thinking about anti-heroes for the last few months, as I kind of tentatively try and prove at least some of this stuff which I've claimed in that abstract. Thanks, Ed. So that's kind of an artistic rendering of the anti-hero. Um, I want to pick apart a few uh, terminological distinctions um, because it has a really wide spectrum of application when it comes to um, identifying the, the types of, of protagonists who might you know, qualify as an anti-hero. Sure. And so I modified the, this following list from uh, tvtropes.org but if you can imagine a spectrum with kind of five gradations running from hero on at the one pole, kind of the upright, you know, good guy, good woman, uh, um, to outright side. Um, but this entire spectrum is the uh, the field of protagonism, right? Where we are rooting for this person, or at least that is the the pressure that the artwork kind of exerts upon us. Um, and starting with a lot of times this will take the form of kind of the, the quintessential hero's journey, um, you know, which has been uh, roundly criticized for being too um, uh, formulaic in terms of the, the development of an unlikely hero, kind of a Frodo Baggins or Bilbo Baggins, into the, the star of the show. Um, a, a little further down the line is maybe a non-hero, and this is someone who never really ends up making that uh, that moral progression or that de character development. Um, someone who's uh, cowardly and remains insecure and self-doubting and weak um, without really overcoming that. Um, in the middle, you could imagine an alternative hero. I didn't know what else to call it, but this is the, the person who comes around, right? The Han Solo who is a bit cranky and crusty, but uh, in a pinch, he'll, he'll be there for you. Um, and it's, I think it's difficult to make this person the star of the show a lot of times, the, the center of your, your novel or um, movie, although it's certainly not unheard of. But um, the, the anti-hero proper, I think, is the fourth level here. And this is the, a hero who breaks the law, um, you know, the... the rule of law, the actual political structures, but even, um, you know, breaks their own moral compass in the interest of some greater good. You know, it, it's definitely a utilitarian perspective. Um, this person tends to be unscrupulous and pragmatic, but ultimately you end up kind of begrudgingly rooting for them uh, because their goal is ultimately noble. And then finally, it, kind of at rock bottom, is the protagonist villain. And this is, is without a doubt, the bad guy, and there's no real justifiable reason for, uh, for glorifying this person or, or protagonizing them, and yet that's what we're confronted with. And so we'll, down the road uh, in the episode, we'll look at some examples of, of maybe each of these. That sounds really good. Um, I think that uh, as, you're, as you were talking there, Drew, I feel like um, some names are popping into my head uh, as for you know, figures to put into each of those slots. Um, but I know that you want to talk about some of the um, um, character flaws that come across uh, with this uh, anti-hero figure, too. Uh, do you want to uh, fit that in right now? 
Yeah, so uh, the Dark Triad is a name for a set of character flaws that you see in a lot of um, figures who would typically be considered an anti-hero. Uh, first of all, they exhibit egocentric uh, narcissism, so it's all about them. And uh, the, incidentally, these are traits which have you know shown up in psychological literature to some degree, um, ranging under you know psychopathy and sociopathy and and uh, uh, I even though they're aesthetic characterizations, um, they obviously show up in the real world, um, as you mentioned, in political figures and, and uh, business figures as well, unfortunately. <laughs> there was a fantastic so, essay. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, go. Well, there was a fantastic essay, and I can't remember exactly where it was. This was maybe two years ago. I want to say that Zero Books may have published it somewhere. They're um, Marxist Press from Great Britain. But it was about sort of in the second golden era of television, supposedly this like post-Sopranos era of uh, scripted dramatic cable television, that the central figure, it's sort of like these figures I've just identified um, in my abstract, are all characters that uh, psychoanalytically would be most likely considered to be sociopaths. <laughs> and this book, which I, I have not read, was an investigation of why in the American psyche right now there's this attraction to like such obviously like loathsome narcissistic, self-serving, amoral characters. And it seemed like in a lot of, um, you know, sort of pop culture criticism, just generally not even academic criticism, that you read online, blogs or whatever, there's this game that people play where it's always, is this character actually a sociopath or not, right? And it's like, so is, is Tony Soprano a sociopath or is he merely a creature of circumstance who was created out of the context of this world? Um, that kind of thing. So there's always this sort of like, I guess armchair psychoanalyzing to figure out which one of these like beloved characters and we do often love these characters is technically speaking in like a medical sense uh, technically a sociopath. I wonder, like, uh, while we're on this subject, I mean, I think what I'm thinking of, if you don't mind, if I go a little lowbrow here, uh, why it's so difficult right now. You talk about the American psyche. Why it's so difficult to make an interesting Superman movie since Christopher Reeve, you know? And, and so um, I actually felt like Man of Steel was one. And then I think that a lot of people's complaints with that movie, um, I understand them. And, and I'm not saying it was a perfect movie, but I think it was an interesting movie at least because they didn't try to make Superman a dark figure. Um, but they understand that it's you can't just have uh, this figure, this powerful figure of light with no like uh, internal conflict. Now he's yet they have to add Batman to make it interesting for the sequel. <laughs> well in the sequel, of course, right? Because they're now they have to follow Marvel into the, the, the movie yeah. franchise uh, business, right? But um, but in that movie, I mean the, the Man of Steel movie by itself was Superman I mean the, the the tension was what does it mean to have a Superman in a world that we live in, in a world that's fallen like this, uh, and in which anti-heroes seem to be the only kind of solution to things? And, and I feel like um, the kind of awkward position that that character plays in modern society speaks to this idea that we need sociopaths in some ways to be in, in charge of things. And I don't know what you guys think of that movie. I actually think it's better than many people do, but uh, uh, I don't know what your opinion about that is. I mean, I've always been more of a, a Batman person than a Superman person, but that's a pretty trite answer. I feel like most people yeah. like Batman more than Superman, and maybe precisely for these reasons that we're talking about. 
that we are more engaged by these like sort of borderline malevolent kind of like dark figures. Um, I was actually thinking about Batman in relation to my like you know Milton hypothesis about sort of Lucifer being this constant archetypal American and kind of embodying these values that we uh, sort of treasure in American society but that are maybe objectively not particularly moral or good. And I was wondering if uh, Batman is categorizable as a type of Luciferian or Miltonic hero. And I don't really have an answer to that. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. He seems fundamentally different to me um, than sort of the characters who I mentioned. Uh, I think of him as kind of more of this, like, I think a lot of people do kind of like that brooding existential kind of anti-hero. But maybe there's something that seems a little bit more um, European about Batman, ironically, uh, than some of the other figures. But uh, I'm not sure. I just taught. Uh, well, taught is a that's a broad term, right? Uh, in this time of the semester, a class of mine and I just watched The Dark Knight together um, over the last week, and uh, and uh, we would talk about it as a film. And so I did a little film analysis, sort of, with that movie. And one thing that we kind of came to as a class was that uh, going back to Drew's uh, typographies here or typologies, um, I feel like Batman and the Joker are sort of occupying positions four and five on that typology. Batman as the anti-hero in the truest sense where he breaks the law for a greater good, unscrupulous and pragmatic, and the, the Joker in that film, Heath Ledger's Joker, is just sort of the protagonist villain. He is the star of that movie, and, uh, and, and he is uh, basically creating a world in which Batman has to do everything he does uh, in order to uh, save the day. And this is sort of the Joker's nefarious plan. But even formally, the movie opens with this kind of elaborate heist scene, which to me uh, uh, looks exactly like the way that Batman goes into Hong Kong and, and pulls that guy out of the office building. I mean, there's these elaborate heist yeah. scenes. Joker does something, Batman does something. Joker does something, Batman does something. So that whole movie sort of seems to exist in the kind of gap between four and five <laughs> of that type uh, typology that you that you offered. I was yeah, wondering... It, it's not... Sorry. I was going to say with Batman, um, I was wondering how responsible is Alfred, right, for the creation of Bruce Wayne becoming Batman. I mean, he was this poor kid who sees his parents killed in front of him. And, like, Alfred does nothing, of presumably, to, like, seek counseling or something for young young Master Bruce. And as a result, we have this guy who's clearly very mentally ill. You know? what, is, what is the culpability of Alfred in this kind of, like, a degeneration that Bruce Wayne goes into Batman? Hmm. Um, that's not really a point that's helpful. It's just a point I felt like making. <laughs> There's a line in... Uh... Adaptation, the the movie written by Charlie Kaufman, yeah, uh, with Nicolas Cage playing his himself or a character in his own twin brother, uh, um, and the one is uh, supposedly a good writer and the other one's just a hack um, who actually makes it, and he's critic he's editing his brother's uh, screenplay. And you know, it's <laughs> his, their mom thinks it's a psychological thriller, and and uh, he's like, no, this is the standard trope of of the cop and villain being you know flip sides of the same coin, yeah. and uh, I think you see that in almost every movie that you would you would pick out as exhibiting you know an antihero, uh, the that razor's edge line between them flipping roles with the the person that they're you know chasing or pursuing or, or trying to defeat. 
I wonder if that's what makes the second Golden Age of television characters so interesting, because I don't think it falls into that kind of, like, pat, predictable pattern of, like, here's the Batman and, and Joker, right? Like, I mean, you know, there's no um, equivalent kind of thing in any of those sort of examples from, you know, The Sopranos, Rick and Bat, or whatever. Uh, I mean, there's, obviously there's television shows, right, where there's, like, the big cop, bad cop, or, you know, bad guy, good cop kind of thing. Uh, I don't know. What, what do you guys think? I think that um, to I kind of to bounce off of your sort of Satan as Miltonic Satan as a, a model for this. I I kind of always see it, particularly the gangster. And now as I'm I'm just sort of thinking as I'm talking, maybe all of these golden age um, TV antiheroes as also kind of bouncing off of the Jewish uh, kind of the folklore of the golem and, and I think that uh, you have in that figure this um, figure, this this body, this creature who's created to protect this at siege, under siege community uh, and so you know these Italian immigrants and the Sopranos are sort of not fitting in or you know are, are sort of under, and some, under some sort of oppression in, in America so they create this uh, uh, strong arm basically to uh, yeah them survive in the world and that strong arm becomes uh, too difficult to manage and has to be brought down eventually and it's sort of the the, the Rabbi Lowe's golem story in a, in a very quick nutshell um, and I've, I kind of see particularly Tony Soprano uh, in that way and in fact early in the first season it's one of the first episodes he has a, a conflict with a, 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 North, a Hasidic I think a Jewish uh, group and uh, that's someone where he's trying to get out of the Get out of the uh, marriage, right? Yes, the guy who owns the hotel, uh, his uh, daughter. He wants to get for his daughter because he doesn't like the son-in-law, and um, and uh, the uh, and so the the, the father-in-law makes this deal with Tony Soprano, and at the end, of course, pays the price for that because Tony Soprano. I mean, he gets him what he wants, but he also is now in league with this kind of satanic uh, figure, and he literally calls him a golem. Uh, in, in that episode, and, and and so I feel like that actually was a really smart piece of writing because it describes, for me, a, a quite a bit of the the dual nature of this new anti-hero. It's it's at once necessary, but also dangerous and must be controlled in some um, often violent way. Well, what I, I saw specifically Miltonic about some of these characters, and I guess this is a certain subset of anti-hero. I mean, I wouldn't want to like reduce this entire phenomenon entirely to oh, that's you know, because I think that Milton's Lucifer is doing something new in literary history that becomes kind of a model because of the profound influence of Milton. And I think that Milton's kind of role, even unconsciously in American letters, which is very strong, is something that's reflected in why, why we find these kinds of characters so evocative right now. But I think that the individual qualities of Lucifer as a character that I think um, characters like Walter White or Tony Soprano or Don Draper or whoever share are kind of, you know, they're evocative, so people are naturally attracted to them, and Lucifer always got the best lines in Paradise Lost. I mean, God and Jesus are straight up, or Christ, I should say, in the film, are straight up boring compared to Lucifer, which is sort of the, the critical difficulty in the poem written by an ostensibly Puritan poet for the past, you know, 350 years. Uh, so they're evocative, uh, they're supremely narcissistic, there's a sense of entitlement, so they're very aggrieved, uh, and sort of a sense of exile. And I think that these are kind of, in positive ways, 
when we talk about things like rugged individualism or like the pioneer spirit or whatever, those are just kind of like lighter or more positive versions of those more negative qualities. And I think they're qualities that you, know, you see them in Milton's Lucifer, but you also see them in people like Draper or Walter White. I mean, the sense of like reinvention, right? So Lucifer falls and he becomes Satan. Well, in the same way Dick Whitman becomes Don Draper or Walter White becomes Heisenberg. This kind of idea that in America, much as Lucifer in hell, really, is you can come up with your own name. You can totally create yourself. Of course, that's idolatrous, and that's the whole problem. That's the, the whole nature of the fall in that poem. And I think that in a complex way, that's what those uh, texts, those television texts, are also saying. Um, and they're also saying it by making these characters so popular. Because in a certain sense, the audiences kind of identify with these characters or want to be these characters. And I think the text, in a sort of way similar to what Stanley Fish says about uh, Paradise Lost, is saying that's precisely the problem that you pretend to be Walter White or that you uh, fantasize about being Tony Soprano or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to talk more about that. Um, because I think, in particular, Breaking Bad served as a an extended uh, kind of test of its audience's uh, moral fortitude, and uh, and kind of the point at which you lose your your identification with Walter. I think says something about uh, you know the the depth of your humanity and compassion and. Um, well, there's a lot of people stopped watching the show, I know, after he watches. He doesn't prevent Jesse's girlfriend from dying. That's a spoiler for everyone if they don't. Yeah. But uh, I know some friends who, at that point, were like, I can't I can't watch this anymore because it seemed like that was a common sort of what you were saying, Drew, uh, that there's this, like, every person has a, you know, a test of how far they're willing to follow Walter White into kind of perdition. And that mm-hmm. seemed to be a common point for a lot of people. Uh, which is interesting for me because uh, right from the pilot, I found myself trying to distance myself from him, almost out of a sense of like preserving my soul, like knowing that this is. I mean, I, I watched it, you know, after everyone else had, but uh, so I was kind of on alert. But it's just so easy to follow a character into making the decisions to um, it, it, following that kind of plot, um, you know, story arc necessity into, like, okay, if I don't kill this guy, he's going to kill my family. And it's, like, under the the conditions, these artificial conditions um, that the show is presenting you with, you you justify almost any degree of violence on behalf of, of the main character. Uh, and I think that that's scary, you know, to, to be um, drawn into culpability with... Um, with a character and in rationalizing, yeah. you know, anything. Well, I think that's that's almost uh, that gets to the heart of what uh, the critic Stanley Fish's argument was about Paradise Lost. And just to sort of briefly uh, explain what that argument is, I mean, in Milton studies, really ever since Paradise Lost was written, there's been this huge debate about how you're supposed to read Lucifer because he's so clearly not just like the most interesting character in the poem; he's one of the most interesting characters in uh, English literature. And so you have, uh, you know, on one hand, um, sort of critics of C.S. Lewis famously, who says, you know, Milton's clearly writing from the position of supporting God. It would be sort of ridiculous to assume otherwise. But then William Blake, of course, famously says 
that Milton's of the Devil's Party and doesn't know it. Uh, I think what Fish said is it kind of combines both of these views together, and he says that what the poem does is it enacts a sort of, quote, surprise by sin. So as you're reading it, you do kind of root for Lucifer, and you follow him through this entire process, and the conclusion is supposed to be, oh, that's right, I, I am naturally sinful, I am fallen, that's why I'm attracted to Lucifer, so that it serves a basically a pedagogical function to explain precisely what the sort of pernicious, attractive nature of evil is. And I think the Breaking Bad is kind of a, a postmodern American version of that, right? Because if Walter White is the sum of his increasingly desperate and evil decisions, and you kind of take the logic, you know, presumably the very first episode, if you knew all that he would do, you're not gonna you're not gonna follow him down that way, right? But as things are revealed to you, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And it kind of mimics the way in which people can really fall, even if they're otherwise ostensibly you know, not bad or not evil people. It kind of like empathetically puts you into this profoundly um, sort of malevolent subjectivity, increasingly malevolent subjectivity. Yeah. So to get back to the, the point earlier about the, um, the counterpart um, you know, hero or anti-hero villain um, dynamic. I think Breaking Bad and also The Wire do an interesting job of uh, having another character develop in the opposite direction. Sure. Right. And so as Walter sinks deeper and deeper into depravity, um, Jesse, who starts out as this burnout, you know, um, kind of antisocial. Uh, more harmless than, than Walter, but definitely a lost soul. Um, but he actually gains a soul throughout the show, right? And in The Wire, in season four at least, uh, you see uh, McNulty, who has been kind of in the first few seasons the counterpart of um, the, the drug gang leader, Stringer Bell. Uh, and they're both kind of cunning and, and streetwise and willing to do whatever it takes to to get the, their job done, um, whether that's going to community college or, uh, you know, hanging out on the corner. But uh, you see McNulty becoming a beat cop instead of a, a, a murder detective, and he just flourishes. He becomes this, in fact, it, the show kind of loses interest in him for a while because um, he's actually doing well, and he's not uh, falling into... The uh, the excesses of, of uh, well anyway watch the show, but um, he actually becomes a vital part of this community for a time, and there's some redemption there as we track the uh, kind of descent of other characters, and so I think it's interesting that to have character development crossing paths in opposite ways. I think that uh, I think it's a really interesting observation, and you know going back to. Breaking Bad, I, I always thought that that show, in terms of its theory of redemption or soterology, was really a, a fascinating show. And uh, I've read an interview with Vince Gilligan about it where he said that his kind of moral vision in Breaking Bad is this idea that essential good and evil are basically defined by the sum of decisions that you choose to make, right? And I think it's a very, I, I guess if, you know, I'm a... Reformation historian, basically, so I kind of like to reduce things to like, is it more Protestant or more Catholic? Which, of course, is uh, <laughs> kind of a, a simplistic way of doing that. But 
you know, if you do the kind of like um, stereotypical works versus faith kind of thing, I think that uh, Breaking Bad has this very like works privileged idea, right? Like in the first episode, you know, the question of is of Walter evil then or not makes no sense because he hasn't done any of the stuff that he ends up doing. So it's sort of this accumulation, this like moral debt that gathers as he like sins more and more and more that are ultimately what make him evil. But when he's just a chemistry teacher, he might have all of the attributes that end up making him this sense of aggrievement, this uh, sense of entitlement that end up, you know, turning him into Heisenberg, but he's not yet Heisenberg, right? So I think Gilligan's kind of formulation, whether we agree with it, you know, uh, philosophically or theologically or whatever, is interesting and sort of thought out clearly. And I think the series, it was an argument for that perspective, demonstrates it pretty well or explains it pretty well. Michael Farmer would want to put that, um, uh, attribute that to existentialism. I mean, this this clearly is right. also, uh, I mean, you can see almost that in No Exit by, by Sartre and um, that same sort of you are the sum of what you've actually done and nothing more and nothing less. Yeah. No, life, no life ends too soon. It's just what it is, right? And, and it's so, a responsibility of kind of taking credit for those yeah, I I wonder. You're talking about these um, the identification issues that go along with these anti-hero narratives. Um, I I just I mean, and so in the Milton Dead, you you um, alluded to the fact that there's a, a school of thought to think that this has a pedagogical purpose, right, to kind of show you your own sinful nature and whatnot. So what it, what does it say about us that it's an assumption now that a, a hero in one of these quality shows has to have anti-hero qualities. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, it's almost like it's not even a surprise anymore when this is, is happened. It's part of the formula. And, and so what is the pedagogical function of that? And I mean, this is, I'm thinking also of Psycho, um, uh, when uh, at the middle of that movie, when uh, Marion Crane dies and the film explicitly makes us identify with Norman, her killer. And for the rest of the movie, we're sort of find ourselves rooting for Norman. Please sink in that swamp. What are you doing, Carr? Right? He's going to get caught. Um, and, and so, um, to me, that was a, a that was a pedagogical purpose of its own, is to sort of make us feel guilty about what our complicity in violence as viewers uh, of it uh, in, in the film, and particularly in film. And so, I don't know that. I see that sort of uh, end game in a lot of these uh, uh, contemporary uh, anti-hero narratives. Uh, what, uh, am I off base? Well, I think if you take the like the four major dramas of the second golden age of TV, so basically Sopranos, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, and The Wire, uh, really with the exclusion of The Wire, the three other narratives, I think, I think what they're doing is kind of like what I'm saying Stan Fischer and Paradise Lost is doing, but in a social and cultural sense, they're looking at what you could think of as this kind of like late capitalist crisis in whiteness or in masculinity or whatever. And I think that the central characters of those shows, you know, they're kind of the archetypal white American male lashing out at a sense that they're somehow losing this game that they've always been guaranteed to win before. And to varying degrees, the characters will sometimes even say variations of these kinds of things. I mean, uh, you know, with Breaking Bad, Breaking Bad sometimes I feel like the symbolism of that is almost like so over the top. It's this guy named Walter White who like literally goes <laughs> to war with all of these like Hispanic drug lords, and then his moment of redemption is basically when he like kills a bunch of Nazis, right? So, um, 
I totally ruined that show for anyone who was giving away everything. Uh, or, you know, The Sopranos, I think, is a really fascinating example of that because that's a case where you're talking about uh, a group of characters who only a generation before their whiteness would have been suspect, right? And so they've finally kind of been granted membership in this exclusive club of being considered white people, only in their minds to feel that it's somehow being taken away from them, right? And you'll have, there's the one episode uh, where they're sort of having um, business dealings with this rap star, and uh, Chris, uh, the nephew, or sort of a uh, you know, symbolic nephew of Tony, has this like whole thing where he goes, well, you know, we're the real gangsters. He's not really a gangster. And so the weird anxiety about like sort of race and masculinity and all of this stuff coming together. But I think if it's if it's trying to make us identify with anything, it's this kind of really uh, dangerous and pernicious and very common idea that exists throughout the body politic of somehow uh, you know whiteness and maleness being entitled to some sort of resentment that you know is not actually warranted, right? I, I wonder if people take it that way. I think you're right. I think that the artistic intent is there, but when you see people uh, really identifying... Oh, yeah, I don't think people do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if this is uh, a golem. <laughs> the, yeah, the it becomes a golem getting out of its creator's control. Fulfill its pedagogical function. Yeah. Yeah, I don't... I mean, you just don't know with audiences necessarily if it does or doesn't, right? right. But, uh, I interrupted so What would you though. say... Oh, sorry. I interrupted um, I, you. <laughs> I, I think you're absolutely right, Ed, that it has a lot to do with um, whiteness and masculinity and the perceived crises of these these situations. So what would you say about um, some more recent uh, anti-heroes or, or even villains, I guess, in shows like uh, Scandal or mm. How to Get Away with Murder or Orange is the New Black? Um, that, so Olivia Pope and uh, Annalise King and uh, V yeah. are the black women who exhibit the same kind of ruthlessness and, um, you know, uncompromising uh, sure. uh, traits that we've been talking about and, and associating them with, with white males. I think that's a, that's a great question. And I think with those shows, what you in part see is a reaction to what was becoming sort of a trite narrative where, like, all of these shows, as great as they are, the sort of previous examples that were given, had the same kind of, like, narrative of, a good man driven to the point of like desperation, blah blah blah, that kind of thing. So a show like Orange Is the New Black is so interesting because uh, it really subverts our expectations of how prestige television has worked for the past 10, 15 years, really. Uh, Orange Is the New Black is really the only example. I mean, I've seen um, Scandal before, but I'm not overly familiar with it. Orange Is the New Black seems like it's doing something totally different to me. I think it's because the anti-heroes that are there, the sort of social, cultural, and economic context of why they did the things they did are always made very clear in the show. And I think what makes that show fascinating is it doesn't necessarily, um, you know, forgive them or make them not responsible for their actions, but their actions are also, you know, understood within the given sort of context of the situation which is beyond their control. So I, I see something like Orange is the New Black as being more in the tradition of something like The Wire, which is to say I see them, you know, everyone says The Wire is Dickensian. It's become like really cliche now to compare it to the sort of great reforming novels of the Victorian era. But I think there's some truth to that, and I think 
that it kind of departs from that Miltonic framework in those because it's less concerned with the primacy of the individual and it's more concerned with community, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you see in Orange is the New Black. I think that's what you largely see in The Wire. So The Wire does kind of allude to some of these like Miltonic anti-heroes with McNulty or with, um, I guess, Omar, you could say, to a, to a certain extent, or Springer Bell. Mm-hmm. Sort of but uh, Orange is the New Black, I think, is, is doing something very different. Scandal, I'm just not familiar with enough to really say one way or the other. Yeah, I I have a love-hate relationship with Scandal, but uh, what I think is interesting is this constant theme uh, woven throughout, even as there's you, you follow all of these ruthless characters. As I was telling my wife tonight uh, that we're about to record a, an episode on anti-heroes and talk about shows like Scandal, she's, she's like, that show is entirely populated with anti-heroes. Like, there, there's no uh, straight-up good people, but... Um, you see, like, a constant theme is, like, I want to walk in the light. Like, I want to uh, I want to seek goodness, and um, that is a theme that you don't see in the the kind of soul descent of, of Walter White. You know, one of, one of the interesting anti-heroes kind of does a little bit of what um, I think you identified Jesse as doing in Breaking Bad is in the uh, much-missed show Deadwood, if either of you are familiar with this. That is uh, David Milcher, I think. It's been off the air for about 10 years now, uh, but it's a sort of um, kind of alternative or uh, you know, postmodern Western or whatever. It's about a town uh, post-Civil War in the Dakotas that is kind of becoming civilization. And the major character in it is uh, Al Swearingen, played by Ian McShane, who is this really nasty character. And he's, a, he's a bar owner, he's a pimp. Um, he is murders with impunity, but the series is kind of about him gaining a soul to a certain extent, and I thought that the series never got credit for his kind of like really optimistic vision. I mean, he was still a very bad guy, but he had a soul pretty clearly, and was kind of like moving towards um, redemption. And the, the really irredeemable characters in that show were ones who like completely rejected the idea of community in any way. And there's a little bit of this kind of like, you know, problematic idea that Swearingen is helping to build quote-unquote civilization in this, you know, Western frontier that's obviously, uh, you know, built on genocide, manifest destiny, and whatever else. But like, bracketing all of that still very important stuff out, uh, Swearingen's an interesting character precisely because he is sort of moving away from the anti-hero qualities that, you know, White or Soprano or kind of like falling into sin and he's kind of coming out of it. To a certain point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's uh, uh, with the Swearingen character. Have you guys ever seen Deadwood? I don't know if you're. No. I've seen a stray episode or two, but it's been a long time. It's a fascinating show. It's actually written in iambic pentameter uh, and it uses <laughs> the word more than any other show, apparently. <laughs> that sort of disjunct I enjoy so much. Uh, but uh, it's, it's a, you know, there's this great, I guess, spoiler alert here for anyone that you know, hasn't seen it yet. There's this fascinating um, episode. It's the last episode of the first season. And I think it gets to some of what's so fascinating about antiheroes and kind of the nature of sin, in which uh, throughout the season, there's a character who's kind of this, like, a Great Awakening revival tent minister. And he's a purely good man. He's not like an Elmer Gantry type guy. So it's fascinating to have this kind of evangelical figure 
who's not being marked as like you know hypocritical and you know drunken and whoremongering or something. Like he's just good, and he helps people, and he's he's there to mark and ritualize things that happen to them. Uh, but it's pretty clear over the course of the whole season that something's wrong with him neurologically. He has a brain tumor, presumably, and he becomes you know increasingly erratic and sort of confused. Uh, and he, you know, he's preaching to horses and things, and he's clearly in like a lot of just, you know, actual physical pain. And Doc Cochran, who's the sort of man of science in the community, also a great character, is sort of like jaded, shell-shocked Civil War veteran, and he's trying to treat the minister, who, you know, he doesn't share his faith, but he you know, really respects him, and nothing he can do is helping this guy who's clearly suffering. Uh, so Swearingen mothers him to death. And it's this really like shocking scene, uh, and you know he says uh, he sort of whispers to the minister, uh, "You can let go, brother." And it's this moment of mercy. It was so fascinating that it's Swearingen's like soul is so dirty and black as is. He's really the only person who can kind of like perform this necessary act because he's already he's not going someplace nice when he's dead. But it's this like moment of mercy. But he kind of bestows like a type of bestows this kind of a type of grace on this minister, and I always thought it was such a fascinating uh, scene and kind of like a really nuanced and subtle exploration of this kind of anti-hero character. Mm-hmm. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to draw the uh, <laughs> close with the, the image of a frontier minister being smothered to death. <laughs> Let's have a moment of silence, shall we? Yeah. yeah. He's really, he's actually okay. Yeah, but I think that illustrates ways in which uh, the the anti-hero can be interesting. And I think um, that's encouraging because, by and large, I'm just, I'm really sick of the, the character type. Like I, I find it really um, lazy in a lot of ways, partly because it plays to so many of the themes that we see in advertisements and commercials and stuff yeah. like every single company wants you to break all the rules and you know do things your way and it's like that's not yeah. <laughs> that's not countercultural that's that's who we are or that's who we yeah. like to think of ourselves as um, sort of you know it's like it's like the uh, the old joke about um, somebody writing question authority you know spray painting it on the wall and then someone else coming up and, and spray painting why yeah. Underneath. <laughs> but then also the think different thing, right? Like Apple computers would like you to be a rebel. Right. Uh, you know, that kind of, or the way in which we uh, really celebrate not particularly great people. I mean, you can back to the Apple thing, Jobs, right? I mean, how many movies about Steve Jobs have to come out? And basically, he was not a good guy. He basically abandoned his daughter. He let his uh, ex wife or his girlfriend or whatever live on welfare while he was a millionaire. But yet, you know, when he, he died, people were putting candles in front of uh, Apple stores like he was Gandhi or something, right? It was kind of strange, misapplied. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, politically, the anti-hero is uh, you should not root for him, right? I mean, he, he's a force of economic and social reaction who, uh, who's out for himself uh, or more rarely herself, I suppose. And if there's any, uh, I guess, uh, bright lining or silver lining to the Dark Knight movie, Batman seems to know that about himself, yeah, and, and he's sort of willing to stay the bad guy in the public eye. Um, but yeah, you know, you're talking about the ironic question authority why thing. 
this is just a, a story that may have little to do with what we're doing, but I have to tell it. Once uh, I used to co-teach a class at Case Western Reserve uh, with a couple of people from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame there in Cleveland. And uh, and so was, some of our classes were there, and we got to go in through the VIP entrance. And you walk in, and there's this, like, graffiti wall that famous people sign as they come in. And there's a sign on it that says... Um, only authorized graffiti allowed. <laughs> it's a, it's, that was just, it's a perfect little that's symbol it. of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, right? I think, that, yeah. That, to me, that that, that just uh, microcosmically represents everything wrong with that place. But, yeah. <laughs> so, so. Go back to Drew's point about sort of the laziness of the antihero right now. I mean, I, I feel like with the big four shows, like I'm a I'm an unabashed fanboy. I'm like they can do no wrong. I love Breaking Bad. I love The Sopranos. I love The Wire. Uh, but it, it has become such a trite kind of um, image, right? And like you sort of feel like anyone that wants an Emmy is like, who next can fall, you know, in, right. in, in discord? And I think the best example of that is um, oh, the, the Netflix show uh, House of Cards, the, uh, mm. the Kevin Spacey one. And like I enjoyed the first season, but I think that basically that's a very dumb show for smart people, right? <laughs> it kind of it takes the things that make characters like Don Draper or, or Walter White interesting, and it kind of like turns them into this uh, snidely whiplash type stock villain. And there's just like a ridiculousness about Frank Underwood as a character, where he just he makes no sense. He's not like a real type of person. Mm. He's like a character from like a uh, Jacobian Revenge tragedy or something, right? Or like something from like early Elizabethan theater. Like mm-hmm. Barabbas from Marlowe's Jew of Malta. He's this is kind of like mustache twirling, over the top evil character, and what motivates him is just evil, I guess, right? There's no real moral complexity to him. And I think that that's an example. Nathan, Sorry. I think Nathan Gilmore would uh, would disagree with you there. Nathan loves that show. Yeah, he did an episode on uh, on that with uh, Trip Fuller from Homebrew Christianity a while back. Uh, they had rave reviews about it, but <laughs> well, it's really funny because I enjoyed the first season of that show. I thought the most interesting character from there, and a lot of people really didn't like him, was the Peter Russo character, the uh, Philadelphia yeah. congressman, who's this sort of uh, alcoholic, womanizing guy who uh, sort of tries to pull himself up. He's, he has a lot of the qualities we've talked about. He's got these sins and these demons, but he's a, a prideful kind of guy. But he also seems like he might want to kind of do well, and then he gets off by Frank as part of the sort of Machiavellian maneuvering that goes on in that first season. But then by the second season, I thought Frank had become so cartoonishly villainous that it just lost me. And with the first season standalone, I thought was an interesting, if kind of subpar version of these other things that we're talking about. But you know, once he becomes like president or whatever, it just—I I was done with it. I couldn't, I couldn't keep up with it. I thought it was too silly, honestly, at that point. Yeah. Well, and I think that that goes to show that um, the—I I think what frustrates me, and this came up in in our last conversation, I think about um, good and evil, is that. It's it's more difficult to portray aesthetically goodness as interesting and compelling, and that's a, that's a tragedy, right? Because um, we're left then with this sense that to be good is to be a goody two shoes, and it's yeah. just like nonsense. Like goodness is the the most difficult achievement of 
being human, right? And it, you know, from Protestant Christian perspective, uh, it's impossible without without the the grace of God. Um, I, I don't know. It, to me, there's just so many other routes that you can go in crafting a story, um, and and having a character not always think to the lowest common denominator and and down to their um, kind of basis desires, but actually overcome the the vicious instincts and uh, I, we're just too cynical maybe for, I don't know. That was part of the brilliance I think of The Wire and it was sort of, it, maybe it comes out of the really um, textured sort of vision of this community and this kind of social uh, vision that David Simon had, but I, I was I was watching an episode of The Wire just a couple of days ago and it was one with uh, Bubbles Bubs, the heroin yeah. uh, addict and uh, he's such a great character because I think he, and you know, he's not a huge character in the show, although arguably other than Wolfie, you know, and Omar maybe and Spinner Bell, none of them are huge characters. Uh, but Bubbles, I think, embodies exactly what you're, you're saying, what you're calling for, right? Is a sort of sense of how hard and yet noble and important the work of goodness is. And, you know, Bubbles is clearly a character that comes out of uh, a certain sense of, like, addiction literature and things like that, and, you know, um, the scenes, uh, sort of the 12-step scenes that you see him in, which comes directly out of Protestant theology or sort of a type of Reformed theology anyhow. Uh, but he's like one of the few characters that I think kind of ends happy on that show. Uh, and and it's, it's really, it's kind of uh, inspiring is such a corny word, but maybe it, it shouldn't be. Uh, but you're, you're happy for him at the end. I mean, he's had these small victories, but his life has clearly improved. And I think it's really a sort of a beautiful depiction of that uh, yearning for goodness and those occasional moments of grace that allow for that. So I, I guess that leaves us with the question, um, you know, where do we go from here? And we being this uh, probably none of us, although you guys are, are kind of more in the, the literary world than I am, so maybe you, you can lend a hand uh, in developing more interesting characters kind of beyond the uh, the lowest common denominator of, of anti-hero, but um, well, I don't I mean, know. I, what, what, sorry, Dan. Go ahead, Drew. I'm finished. No, no, that was it. Well, I, I, I mean, I think I kind of, I, I, as you're talking, I'm trying to think of a, a better solution to having just sort of a, a morally comp. So in Sopranos, the, the, the trick of that show was in order to make Tony more amenable, you always had to introduce some really horrible person every season who had to then be off at the end of the season. And so um, that was sort of the trick of that show to make us empathize with him and not necessarily judge him too harshly for his horrible um, behavior. Um, but it, I, I'm kind of hard-pressed to even imagine how you can have an actually interesting show without... Uh, devolving into the the Kirk Cameron movie um, uh, <laughs> uh, about just a purely uh, good person who always does good, and the only thing I can think of as an example, again, I I am it's the end of the semester, my brain's not functioning. This is again lowbrow, but the Man of Steel movie, I thought that their solution to what to do with Superman was actually a smart one. Now whether they actually 
fulfilled that very well or not, I don't know, but it made it just an overt meditation about the responsibility of being a good person uh, in a world that is not good and, and being forced to do things you don't want to do, and, and, uh, and it kind of tracked the, the rather mournful consequences of that uh, activity, and, and so I don't know if that's, I mean, he's not an anti-hero in that movie, um, but he's also um, a more, more interesting than the... Uh, the night, whatever the Kevin Spacey Lex Luthor version of Superman movie, whatever that one was, uh, I forget who even Brandon somebody played Superman in that. I can't even remember. But uh, yeah, so I don't know, Ed. What do you think? I mean, narratively, I'm trying to th- figure out how to way to create interesting characters by moving past the uh, the antihero. I think narratively, I mean, just to go back to Orange is the New Black, I think it's actually a profoundly underrated show in some ways. And I mean, if the uh, you know if people have identified the golden age of TV as being all about difficult men, right? Because it's the phrase you actually hear. And I, I love how Orange is the New Black in terms of its portrayal of uh, female characters and queer characters really sort of breaks that mold. I also think that what's fascinating about that show is, and I haven't seen the latest season because it had less good reviews, uh, but it sort of it sort of enacts these like moments of goodness or these moments of empathy, and I think it performs kind of in its own way uh, didactic, and I, I mean that in a good sense, or pedagogical function, in terms of um, kind of demonstrating for us how systems of empathy might work. And one of the uh, great things in the first season was uh, there's this character, uh, Crazy Eyes, who's this uh, really out there, disturbing, um, kind of ostensibly insane inmate at this prison where Piper is the, the main uh, character. Piper's this sort of pretty waspy white girl who's been sent to, to this prison and we're clearly supposed to identify with her to a certain point and Crazy Eyes uh, develops this you know, borderline obsessive crush on Piper and Crazy Eyes is like really a, kind of a, a target of you make fun of her to a certain extent where you think of her as this like jocular character. You don't really think of her as a person. And the show does this on purpose because there's this, uh, I thought it was a heartbreaking scene and it was brilliantly done, where Piper's uh, boyfriend, who's outside of prison obviously, is on this sort of This American Life national public radio type TV show where he's talking to this sort of like vaguely malevolent Ira Glass type figure and he's talking about his girlfriend's experience in prison and he's telling uh, the audience all of these stories about crazy eyes and you're kind of laughing along with him, and then it cuts to Crazy Eyes in her cell, listening to the radio program, and she's crying. And it's this like moment where you're suddenly implicated in, oh, this is this is a really bad thing that's hurting a person. At the end of the day, is not a particularly bad person. Is a person who, because of you know mental illness or circumstance or whatever, is in jail, and you just use them as a punchline for like ten episodes of this series. And I think the full moral weight of your responsibility of reducing them to an it rather than a thou, to use the mm-hmm. Martin Gruber formulation of kind of relationship between individuals, really hits you as an audience member. And I thought that that was a great example of how a show has been able to very subtly uh, kind of do this without reducing a, you know, it's not like a Kirk Cameron thing. Right? He doesn't like run in and say, it's bad to make fun of her or whatever. And uh, it, it no, worked really effectively. 
I think season three is worth watching because they do the same thing with Pensatucky. Oh, okay. Yeah, Pensatucky is the closest to, like, uh, a villain. Her and the, uh, the warden character, I guess. So it'd be interesting to see Pensatucky be a little bit humanized, I think. Is that where they get that name? I've yeah. never seen that show. When I moved here to central Pennsylvania and people started saying, oh, you live in Pensatucky now, and I had no idea where that term came from. So I learned something. Excellent. I think <laughs> she got her name from the term. I think the term oh. is... Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, as you're talking, I, I'm thinking of an anti-hero show that I've watched that I actually think works, um, and it's the Daredevil um, show on um, Netflix. And, and I think largely for the reasons that Ed identified, the the idea of empathy uh, is uh, is really emphasized in that. And his his Catholicity is really important to that character and and the sort of moral responsibility. Um, to kind of really just destroy himself in, in the pursuit of the good, uh, kind of drives that narrative. But the the bad are are never very one dimensional. And in fact, there's a I mean a, a scene in that show where a uh, a main bad guy character uh, I won't give away too many details um, unexpectedly gets killed. And and there is not like a moment of triumph for the audience in that. And almost, uh, I hear all these I've never seen. Um, Oh, what's that show with the kings and the dragons on oh, uh, Game of Thrones? Game of Thrones. I've never seen that show. Um, but when I understand when the boy king dies, everybody's jubilant because he was such a terrible person. Um, so this bad guy dies, and you legitimately feel the weight of that. Uh, and, and it's not a, a joyful moment. Um, and I don't know exactly how they accomplish that narratively because he never really does anything <laughs> good. Uh, but uh, but when he dies, it's actually quite uh, moving and and. Maybe it's because the, the the good person who kills him um, feels the moral weight of what they've done, and, and I think that the the idea of emphasizing empathy and, and the the Buber formulation of I and Thou is a great way to think about that. Um, uh, I think that's probably why that's successful uh, in that moment of the series, particularly. Um, and also, the other alternative I thought of while you were talking is to have no pretense of a hero in, in a story. And, and if you're wondering if that's possible, I've just taught the Alan Moore graphic novel from hell uh, the last couple of weeks. And uh, at the end of this novel, I asked the class, I mean, who's the hero of this, of this novel? Because the Aberline, the detective, is not. And this is quite different than the movie uh, version of it with Johnny Depp, which is actually quite good, I think, but uh, it's entirely different than the novel. And so I said, I think ultimately Jack the Ripper is the hero <laughs> of, this, of this story because we're following him from beginning. There's no sort of twist ending to this. We know who's doing it and why, and we watch him do it, and we watch him from beginning to end. And so narratively, he's the hero but we can't accept him as the hero. And so it just sort of dispenses with the entire idea of, of goodness. And I think that that could be for this for a very kind of pedagogical, didactic, if you will, uh, reason. And I think that that's possibly another alternative to the, the soiled hero. <laughs> I, think, I mean, Alan Moore is fantastic with that kind of subversion of what we expect about heroes. I mean, Watchmen is the obvious example there, where he basically takes the, the superhero archetype and shows it for what it is, which is sort of a proxy for a type of fascist cult of personality, right? I mean, like, Superman, Ubermensch is like a literally, you know, uh, there's a lot that's problematic about those sorts of characters. I mean, you know, uh, so I think you're right, that kind of um, dispensing with the idea of a hero anyhow mm -hmm. is maybe one way to deal with it. I mean, there are, the line between a hero and an anti-hero might be thinner than we think. 
And I think the whole yeah, idea is... Yeah. His character oh, of Rorschach, they're explicitly an exploration of the, this psychology of, of a Bruce Wayne Batman character, right? Yeah. Saying, like, yeah. this person would be an utter sociopath. Like, the, uh, there's no oscillation between good and evil here. There's, there's a uncompromising principle. Um, yeah. <laughs> if you're familiar with Carl Schmitt at all, the German political philosopher, uh, from the 1930s, who's recently come back into vogue with sort of discussions of political theology and secularization and things like that. Carl Schmitt, as a German philosopher from the 1930s, uh, had some unsavory political connections. We'll, we'll put that out there like that. Uh, but one of his famous lines was, uh, the sovereign is he who decides the exception, right? So kind of the idea that sovereignty is born uh, specifically out of being sort of outside of the law and defining the law in terms of entirely yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And like that, you know, describes uh, Hitler or Batman, right? I mean, there's sort of that the, the superhero uh, as a character is kind of so politically problematic, and the genius of Watchmen uh, is that it points out what's problematic about the superhero to its audience. Yeah, so uh, maybe we should wrap up with some um, other recommendations. Uh, Danny, you were mentioning um, the Daredevil universe. Did you have anything more to add? Yes, um, I think I'm uh, because I was going. I wanted to talk about Jessica Jones. Um, and I've been saving this because I do think that this is the perhaps the best re resolution to the anti-hero problem that um, that I can think of that I've seen re recently. Um, and it's kind of it's very natural. These are Marvel's first two Netflix series, and so to compare Jessica Jessica Jones with the Daredevil series, um, and, and I think that the Jessica Jones series is is doing something completely different with the idea of anti-heroes. They're purposefully setting all of these characters in Hell's Kitchen in the wake of the, the disaster that, of the Avengers movie. And, and so they're, there's, they're putting them all in these sort of hellish uh, places uh, and uh, to kind of set up these kind of street-level anti-hero heroes. Uh, and um, by the way, before I get into that, lest anybody think that this kind of thing is just sort of intellectual stimulation, I mean, it is important to wonder about how our affection for anti-heroes might be uh, preparing us for cheering on certain amount, certain numbers of us uh, political candidates who are, are embodying these disgusting traits publicly, and we're sort of forgiving them for that. I'm, Do you have anyone in mind? I'm Donald Trump. I mean, it's, <laughs> this is not a. Uh, I mean, he's like overtly fascist at this point, right? And, and yeah. his supporters are not upset about this, and I think. Perhaps the art that we're consuming as a culture is training us to think and uh, uh, approach the world in unsavory ways. And so, there was a, um, have you ever read uh, Tony Swafford's uh, Jarhead memoir? Uh, I have not. Great book. Uh, they made a not-so-great movie about it, but it's a memoir uh, about a guy who was a Marine in the first Gulf War in the early 90s. And there's this interesting part where he talks about before they were deployed, they would all watch movies like the... Fear uh, Hunter and Apocalypse Now and Full Metal Jacket. These are all movies that come out of like a pretty explicit anti-war discourse. And he says he knew it, and all of the other Marines knew it. Yet the unmistakably evocative depiction of war was basically like pornography for them. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if our sort of affection for anti-heroes isn't similar in terms of what you're saying. That you know this kind of. Uh, Wall Street might be a movie, or the Wolf of Wall Street, or whatever, 
uh, Gordon Gecko and Jordan Belfort might be anti-heroes if you're that are bad people, and those texts might make it clear that those are bad people. Yet you're kind of uh, you kind of are made to like them, and I wonder or fear if that's happening, transferring from fiction into the realm of nonfiction. Now. Yeah, I just I'm not sure we're mature enough as a culture to really be able to appreciate antiheroes. <laughs> um, I I think it it's the worst in us. Instead, like even though a lot of these uh, these shows and and books and such are really well crafted and could really convict us and and humanize us, right, and, and call us into, uh, you know, more deeply into hope and love and life and resurrection. But uh, so often I think people miss that and yeah. they find themselves reinforced in, in their own kind of basest <laughs> uh, orientations. And I, I, I say that as a member of the human race who's equally susceptible to those uh, those types of moves. But um, I think that's another reason that I'm just kind of done with the anti-hero genre is because, it yeah, it, it, if you can watch an anti-war movie and come away, <laughs> you know, like uh, being excited about the napalm raid, then... <laughs> it's an interesting question, right, about the utility of art because, uh, you know, I'm, that's sort of argument that like, oh, it's just a movie, it's just a, a song, it's just a video game or whatever has never moved me. And I say this as like a free speech absolutist, but it seems to me that like of course culture influences and changes people. And of course it can be dangerous and of course it can make people do bad things or make your thoughts uh, altered and bad. I mean, if it didn't do that, then why would we care about it one way or the other? Uh, <laughs> we have that kind of like Promethean freedom to like create whatever we want and to consume whatever we want. That's an interesting philosophical question then, of how do we ethically square that in a, in a society. I mean, I guess because the alternative of, of regulating it in some way is just worse, but um, I, mean, I do think that there's obviously a, a utility, an ethical utility, not just to how we create things, but how we interpret them. And I think your point that maybe as a culture we're not always mature enough to understand some of these things collectively. I think it's very well taken, and I think there's a lot of truth to it. Now, what to do with that, I don't know, but uh, I think it's an interesting point. Well, I think on an individual level, um, we I mean, we have to be careful about what shapes our desires. And here I'm again drawing yeah. on Jamie Smith, right? Uh, what is it that... Um, are we allowing the art that we consume to shape our desires in the correct direction, right? And, you know, for me as a person of faith, I, I, this is the whole purpose of a, of a religious uh, devotion outside of myself, right, that, that um, confines my desires uh, to something, you know, that's hopefully healthy, right? Um, so that would be, you know, my kind of trite answer. But, yeah, th that's, the, that's the trick is being able to watch The Sopranos, this is one of my favorite shows ever, right? And I've I've seen it multiple times, um, and 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 to watch it for the right reasons and not be shaped as a disciple of Tony, but rather as a uh, watch it as a more of a cautionary tale. Um, and so, um, but anyway, back to uh, sorry, forgive me for my uh, little uh, tirade. But uh, the uh, Jessica Jones series is um, is quite different in its uh, uh, depiction of the anti-hero. I think that I would still classify her in that way, but I don't think she fits really any of the types that uh, we talked about uh, at the beginning of this. And I feel like um, where the show 
goes in a different direction is its utter rejection of the idea of heroism. Uh, I think that uh, the, the main character, Jessica Jones, who's this super-powered person who uh, has tried her hand at superhero business uh, before and has uh, had these traumatic experiences. And the show's a very... Um, uh, I mean, feminists are, are raving about it because it's it's very much about trauma, and and it's uh, and it's depicting trauma in a way that's not insulting, and and it's a way that doesn't glorify the trauma, uh, and, and so it's it's quite good on that level, on the artistic level, but her decision, her decisions basically, and she is flawed in all the ways that the antiheroes are typically flawed. She's a heavy drinker, and she sleeps around, and, and, and she's got a bad attitude, and she roughs things up, you know, and throws people through windows. But the difference is she's, like, actively avoiding the label of hero every chance she gets. Um, and every good act that she does is on a personal basis to do good for a person. Uh, and and, and th that, to me, is a... a again, brings up the empathy that you're talking about. Um, uh, and it also kind of avoids some of the pitfalls of the, you know, the Batman, Rorschach sort of utilitarian, fascist uh, kind of um, approach to heroism in the superhero genre. And I think that it's, it's really um, a, a unique take on the superhero uh, narrative and it's particularly unique for the Marvel Universe I think which is um, you know makes all of its money on the kind of very somewhat old-fashioned ideas of, uh, of men in spandex suits right uh, and uh, doing great things uh, and so I think that uh, it's a very admirable show to watch I'm about three-quarters of the way through it so I can't I couldn't spoil it if I wanted to but uh, it, it's got a, a, a very unique and interesting take on the uh, anti-hero that uses it, that makes use of it, good use of it, but pushes it forward um, into more interesting territory. I mean, we don't need another Tony Soprano at this point. Uh, so I've been thinking about what I would want to review um, for a bit. And originally I was going to do a critical work, and I'll just throw it out there real quickly uh, without really elaborating on that too much because there's something else I'd like to talk about. Uh, the critical work is Leslie Fiedler's Love and Death in the American Novel, which I quoted in my abstract at the beginning of the show. And uh, I think that's a underutilized and underread critical book. It comes out in uh, the mid-60s, I think. And uh, Fiedler, if listeners aren't familiar with him, some of these critics who became big right before the kind of like onslaught of French theory, uh, but his concerns are still those which become dominant in the Academy later. So he's interested in pop culture, he's interested in race, class, and gender. But the way in which he engages with it is much more accessible, and it's funny which, you know, uh, uh, Roland Barthes many things, but he's you know, rarely funny. Um, <laughs> so uh, Fiedler uh, is it's really kind of fascinating, almost in that tradition of Edmund Wilson, but again, funnier uh, type of, uh, type of um, literary criticism. So that's, that's uh, and the reason it pertains to this is because he talks a lot about these sort of uh, cold, stoic, isolated killers that D.H. Lawrence talks about that uh, are sort of archetypally American that like, dominate most of uh, the uh, sort of quote-unquote great American novels uh, with a few major exceptions. The sort of more uh, pop culture thing that I'd like to promote that occurred to me as we were talking was the recent Amazon series, uh, The Man in the High Castle. Either of you guys seen this yet? I've seen the first episode, and I haven't got back to it. I love that novel. I, I wanted to dedicate Christmas break to really sitting down and watching yeah. it. The, the novel's fantastic. I mean, they have uh, some similarities 
uh, as usual, the novel, I think, is a little bit more interesting and better. Um, but, it, you know, it departs narratively from a lot of what happens in the Philippine Dick original. But one of the interesting things with um, The Man in the High Castle is I think it's kind of a depiction of uh, a whole society that I wouldn't say they're anti-heroic. They're kind of like a capitulationist fallen society that is uh, really amenable to allowing evil to happen and a sort of not brave or not heroic society. Uh, and in terms of like the, the just has straight out villains in it for the most part. I mean, there's a sort of a SS agent who, if people aren't familiar with the show, it's about a parallel universe in alternate history in which uh, the United States lost World War II uh, and the U.S. is split between a Nazi half in the East and a Japanese half in the, in the West. So there's a character who is this uh, SS officer, and he, his name is John Smith. They gave him like the most comically generic American name ever. And they're just sort of like, oh, I, you know, I get it. It could happen here. Kind of <laughs> thing. But uh, that being said, I think what both the series and especially the novel do really well is depict how uh, easily people can fall into a situation that they would have found unbearable or completely immoral only shortly before. And so that there's this kind of normalization of the ethically obscene that people are just willing to uh, willing to live with. And uh, they most effectively do this in the series when one of the characters uh, is Joe Blake, with this sort of American name. He's driving from uh, a Nazi New York to this sort of like neutral zone that's in between the two states. Uh, and he's somewhere in the Midwest, and it's this very kind of um, American pastoral, stereotypical Midwestern sort of place. And he gets pulled over by this police officer who's you know, sort of friendly, and I think he's speeding or whatever, one of those things. Um, but it looks like it's starting to snow, and you can tell that it's too warm for it to be snowing. And the, the, they give you just enough time to kind of be confused by it, and the main character, Blake, looks confused as well. And the police officer sees this confusion, and he says, oh, you know, it's a Monday. That's the day that they eliminate the undesirables at the hospital. So that they're, you know, cremating these political prisoners um, in, in basically a concentration camp in the American Midwest. And the police officer, you know, he's, he's fine with this. He doesn't, you know, doesn't comment really one way or the other. And I think is a way of depicting how a whole society can kind of engage its worst impulses. Or maybe I should say just uh, look the other way when things like this happen. Uh, it's, it's really effective. And it's been surreal to watch this series because I've been binging it for about a full week. Uh, during this, our uh, winter of discontent, the emergence of like homegrown American fascism, where when you think about it, even conservative newspapers are talking about how a certain candidate is engaging some of these noxious totalitarian kinds of uh, ideological structures. You know, like when when the Weekly Standard or the National Review calls you a fascist, like. Jesus, right? And uh, the fact that like a candidate is openly advocating positions that are fascistic would have been unthinkable five years ago. I mean, if you had said that this would be a position in American political life, and yeah, we're outraged, and a lot of us are, you know, condemning it and posting really angry Facebook posts. That's how I'm sort of fighting the struggle, making a difference. But right, the fact that it's been normalized to the point where it's even something that we're talking about. Uh, and it doesn't seem hyperbolic is disturbing. 
and it does naturally make you think what six months, one year from now, five years from now, how are we going to, you know, what will be the normal then? And I think that that is, uh, I think that the man in the high castle does a good job of alerting us to those kind of uh, dangers and not being aware and not being vigilant uh, about those kinds of things. So that's my, that's my review. Yeah, and they say, I mean, the best science fiction is not really about the future, it's about the present, right? And, and I think that Dick's work, that Phil K. Dick's work really uh, falls into that, that category. Yeah. Yeah. True. yeah, so I'll wrap up with uh, with my recommendation. Um, I know I've been ripping on some of the, the features of this um, already, but I, I can't help myself. I, I love it. Um, the show Hannibal, which has been canceled, uh, unfortunately, uh, I have I love the first season and I kind of lost my my passion for it. Um, I haven't quite finished it yet. I haven't bought the last few episodes um, of the, the the most recent season so I, I can't uh, say that they don't turn everything around but I, I thought the first season was a fascinating exploration of compassion and it's built into the character of will Graham so, uh, again, it's this uh, the dynamic between hero and villain um, as being flip sides of the same coin, you know, there but for the grace of God go I kind of a thing, um, where the uh, this consultant for the FBI is tracking various serial killers uh, in conjunction with, um, unbeknownst to him, kind of under his own nose, the, the most kind of... Uh, paradigmatic serial killer of, of our uh, pop culture the last few decades, Hannibal Lecter. Um, and I loved the Hannibal books and movies when I was kind of coming of age. Uh, there was a period where I wanted to be, a, uh, you know, to join the um, the FBI for precisely that reason and, and was all up into tracking down serial killers, you know, from my, from my bedroom and safe little nowhere, Midwest Iowa. But um, the the whole notion of compassion is part of his disposition, and it makes him uh, vulnerable in, in good ways and bad ways because uh, the, uh, a psychologist says on the show that he has pure empathy, and they allude to the fact that he might be on the autism spectrum and um, has a, a, a deep identification with other people, and it makes him a really... Uh, a really warm-hearted character, I think, on screen, and and I I wasn't expecting that. I hadn't gotten that sense in, in reading the books or or prior prior uh, portrayals of the character. But in the first season, he's just extremely uh, human and humanizing, and that just gets effaced over the course of the show. And it's it's really tragic, and that might be part of the point, but. Um, I, I feel like there was a better way that the show could have handled that, but it, that doesn't detract from my, my recommending it. Um, partly because Hannibal is just an endlessly fascinating character, kind of a Rorschach test on which to project our own um, kind of, you know, id-driven <laughs> uh, desires and, and repressed wishes and, and the, you know, bearing the, the kind of sinful scar of our fallenness, but um, I, yeah, I think Will Graham's compassion, which lets him track uh, serial killers by identifying so deeply with him that, that he can imagine himself in a crime scene and kind of reverse engineer the the crimes, um, 
you know, from a first-person perspective, uh, it's it's been done before, but not this well. And I I think it is a testament to the way in which an anti-hero genre can be kind of oriented towards greater compassion and and love and uh, yeah, human flourishing. Hannibal season one. Absolutely, and I, I mean, I'm on board for seasons two and three as well. But uh, but I, I do get to what you're saying, and I feel like Graham, just a, one brief aside, he's sort of like a tool basically because of this capacity that is used uh, in a way that makes him identify with the horrible, right? And so I think he sort of stands as a cautionary tale for our own consumption of, of ant consumption. That's a, a nice little pun to go along with that show. Uh, <laughs> to, uh, to consumption of uh, anti-hero narratives. Uh, and so, yeah, I think I find that show endlessly fascinating. So, um, Well, fellas, uh, Drew, particularly, thank you so much for this topic, and thanks for leading us through uh, this great discussion. Um, I'm hoping to have uh, you all back in the near future. Uh, those of you who are uh, still with us and listening, we hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, the next episode we are uh, planning is going to be uh, perhaps a critical look uh, at football. Uh, I'm tentatively calling this the football industrial complex. And, um, and we will be, uh, this will be out in time for the playoffs and the Super Bowl, hopefully. Uh, but uh, uh, be on the lookout for that and in the future. We do have a little Kirk Cameron movie episode uh, 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 in the works as well. So, um, fellas, I want to thank you. I want to, the listeners, I want to uh, point you again to our Facebook page and to the email. Give us any feedback uh, that you can and, uh, and let us know uh, what we do well and what we could do better. Uh, thanks for listening. Ed, Drew, thanks a lot for uh, joining me today, and we will see you all next time. listening to Sectarian Review. Download us again next month for another hour of criticism, reviews, and opinion. In the meantime, check out our Facebook page and send us an email at sectarianreview at gmail.com. Sectarian Review is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Eternal thanks to Kristen Philippic, the trepid press liaison. Until next time, remember the words of Kafka, don't despair, not even over the fact that you don't despair. Bye. <laughs>